Welcome to Stories of Impact. I'm writer-producer Tavia Gilbert, and every first and third Tuesday, usually, journalist Richard Sergey and I bring you conversations about the art and science of human flourishing. Over the last 10 months, we've brought you episodes that span subjects including music and dance, happiness, education and faith, healthcare and human rights, We've learned from experts throughout the world how we can, as one of my dear friends puts it, grow toward the light, increasing our health and well-being, deepening peace and building community. In addition to the through-line of human flourishing that centers each of our explorations, the common denominator is human culture. We've learned together that while individual people have agency over many aspects of their own flourishing, For any of us to have the greatest opportunity to flourish and the greatest depth of flourishing, we have to foster cultures that support flourishing for all. And we've learned that we are at our best when we recognize cultural intelligence and examples of human flourishing beyond our own borders. But what is culture? How is culture transmitted? And what is unique about human culture compared to our closest animal species relatives? Today's conversation answers all these questions. Meet Dr. Christine Laguerre, professor of psychology at University of Texas at Austin, whose research into the foundations of cultural intelligence has been supported by Templeton World Charity Foundation funding. Let's start with my first question. How do we define culture? Culture is a suite of knowledge systems, technologies, toolkits transmitted within populations across generations. Culture is a moving target. It changes, it increases in complexity. Culture accumulates over time. The more human brains that contribute to a body of knowledge, the more it changes, the more complex it gets. And we transmit this to our children and to others in our environment. What questions does Dr. Laguerre's research hope to answer? This project provides insight into what makes humans unique cognitively, culturally, and socially. The objective of the research that we're doing is to try to understand both from a developmental perspective as well as from an evolutionary perspective, the building blocks of culture and cultural learning. So to try to understand what the kind of cognitive infrastructure that underlies cultural complexity as well as innovation, tool innovation, technological innovation, differences between the species and and how that develops over time. Dr. Laguerre points to the differences in cultural intelligence between humans and the chimpanzee, our closest primate relative, and offers this interesting comparison. While chimps have roughly the same technological repertoire that they've had for thousands of years, human children are using iPhones. What accounts for that vast difference in cultural intelligence? There are multiple differences that can explain technological complexity between, say, chimpanzees, for example, and humans. One explanation is surely neurological and cognitive, but there are many other explanations for this. One is the kind of human obsession with the beliefs and thoughts and knowledge of other humans. 
So we are deeply interested in what other humans know. We're interested in acquiring that knowledge ourselves, even at our you know, the very youngest ages. Young children are interested in acquiring the knowledge of others. What children have is a repertoire of cultural learning strategies. Children learn through observation, by watching others in their environment. They learn through participation, so by following along in the activities of others. They learn through imitation. They also learn because other people in their environment, their parents, their teachers, teach them. So they have a whole repertoire of processes that they use to learn culture. They have a very flexible and powerful toolkit of learning strategies at their disposal. So it's our preoccupation with others and what they know through social learning that can explain this really massive difference in content knowledge. Not only that, we of course have these massive stores of cultural knowledge that we can access, many cultural reservoirs of knowledge. Many other animals have the capacity to learn using some of those learning strategies. We're certainly not the only animal that learns by observing, but we are the only animal probably that learns through teaching. It's the constellation of those learning strategies and the flexibility with which we can deploy them that makes us incredibly powerful social learners. And an essential aspect of what makes us human is that social nature. Humans naturally function in societal groups. In our species, cognition has evolved in the context of group living, group interaction. So all of the cognitive activities of humans generally and human children in particular exists in a social context. So the content of our thoughts are shaped by our interactions with other people, not just our direct interactions, but our interactions with the products of people, which is cultural artifacts, technologies, bodies of knowledge. This is in many ways quite different from our closest relatives who don't have bodies of accumulated cultural knowledge stored in books and computers and oral traditions, for example. So although all other primates interact quite extensively with members of their own species, the unique features of human culture are this kind of accumulation of cultural knowledge that we have access to. Our drive to learn is unmatched by any other species. So we're characteristically curious we learn not just because we have a particular problem to solve, although that, of course, does drive our curiosity. We're interested in discovery. We're surprised by inconsistency. We have a tremendous appetite for understanding more, for learning more, for innovating, developing better ways of doing things that is just uncharacteristic of any other animal species. So we're learners, and we're deeply interested in understanding why things work, why people act the way that they do. We're curious about not just our physical environment, but also our social environment. The human brain is primed from earliest moments to seek opportunities to learn through independent exploration. And children also learn, of course, when they're taught by others. In fact, the willingness of adults to teach children is also unique to the human species. They also learn through active exploration and kind of firsthand experimentation um, in the world around them. So they're learning 
using a variety of different learning processes, imitation, exploration, observation, uh, but they're also being taught by peers, by teachers, by their parents. Human parents spend an enormous amount of time teaching their children, modifying particular activities to be maximally comprehensible to a young child. They'll include their young children in ongoing activities they're engaging in, despite the fact that they basically just get in the way and and slow down the activity. But we tolerate that because one of our primary goals is to educate our offspring. Humans have learned how to intentionally transmit cultural intelligence to a wide audience, starting with its youngest constituents. Basically, as early as you can study children's imitation, children are imitating everything their caretakers are doing, their siblings are doing, other members of their community are doing. And the careful and close attention to the knowledge and toolkits and beliefs and values of others around you, over time, there's a ratcheting effect. And the amount that juvenile humans have is, it's truly tremendous. So many, many years of careful attention and learning from others around us creates vast repertoires of knowledge. And then, of course, the cultural transmission systems we have in place, educational systems, literacy, numeracy, information technology, provides ever more complex bodies of knowledge. From birth, young children are working to learn how to become what members of whatever community that they are born into. They're working on learning the languages of the community that they're part of, by listening in, by imitating the speech of those around them. All of the the people in their community, from their parents to their siblings, their extended families, their teachers, are putting effort into teaching them and to providing information that is really uh, kind of optimally structured for them to learn it. That's a big part of what makes human culture exceptional. It's not just that our children are motivated to learn. We're also motivated to spend a lot of time and energy teaching them. There are many people that decide what cultural knowledge is going to be transmitted within a school system. This is everything from the local values of the community, the skills and content knowledge that that particular population, what they value, what will be useful to children as they grow into adulthood. This is very different from what we've seen in any other animal species. Humans do that all the time, and not just for their own children, but for unrelated children. I mean, we've set up cultural transmission systems, which we call schools, that are specifically designed to transmit culture to unrelated children. So it's a complex system that is specifically designed to transmit cultural knowledge. So you have really a perfect system of motivated to learn and motivated to teach. What's most powerful about this perfect system is that the cultural intelligence that is transmitted is cumulative. All of these cultural transmission systems we've developed over thousands of years, literacy and numeracy, more recently computer technology, allow us to store to transmit, but also to build upon the insights of previous generations. The reason we have an iPhone now is that we've been able to accumulate the many, many, many insights in previous generations that have led up to the current technology. That isn't the product of one generation. 
that's the product of many, many um, iterations of the technology that forms the basis for the iPhone. Many brains and many minds are contributing to this technology, a vast network that spans hundreds, even thousands of years. The kind of innovation exemplified by the iPhone is a direct result of cumulative cultural intelligence, says Dr. Laguerre. Innovation and cumulative culture are deeply interconnected. Innovation allows you to build upon the insights of previous generations, but also to add to them, to modify them, to meet current demands, to solve critical problems. So you really need both of those processes to get more complex, more diverse, more useful repertoires of cultural knowledge. A big reason that we innovate and create new technologies is because they are useful for the communities that we are part of. So a big part of innovation is, it's not just developing something entirely new, it's combining novel insights in new ways. It's putting pieces together in ways that have never been combined before. How does innovation work? Innovation is, it's a complex process that has at least three prongs to it. So the first part of innovation is coming up with something different, something novel. The next part of innovation is coming up with something that is useful and better than what came before. And then just as importantly, it needs to be adopted by others. So it needs to be taken on and recognized by groups and populations as something that's useful and something that they want to use within their own communities. Innovation can occur at the level of an individual, but it most often involves vast communities of people working together to generate new and better ideas. One of the things that you often see in American culture is that we valorize kind of solitary geniuses. And this in fact misrepresents the process of scientific discovery. All major discoveries are the process of the synthesis and accumulation and recombination of the insights of many, many, many people working together. If you actually wanted to give a list giving full credit for the iPhone, there would be hundreds, thousands of names on that list. Steve Jobs is just a figurehead of a cultural product of thousands of people in many, many countries around the world. Dr. Laguerre emphasizes the point that human culture is never developed by one solitary genius. Culture has always developed because of collective consciousness. Human culture is possible only because of cooperation. I mean, there are a lot of challenges associated with cooperation. The good news is that we're tremendously good at cooperating, even very young children are motivated to cooperate. They're pro-social, they're interested in facilitating and helping others. So we harness this really kind of core feature of humans and scale it. I mean, really, the problem is not, are we able to cooperate? We're tremendously cooperative. The challenge is, how do we harness our tendency to cooperate at a scale that is really unprecedented in human history. So we have the capacity to do this. Even really young children have the capacity to do this. So how do we scale it? And how do we harness this and kind of build this at a global scale, at a scale that will benefit all human populations 
and not just a portion of them. But when we innovate around those scientific discoveries, especially when we create disruptive technologies, do we stand to lose more than we gain? Is there an inherent danger in innovation and the resulting transformation of our culture? All cultural technologies transform human cognition. They're the product of human intelligence, and the internet certainly transforms how we interact, how we think, how we solve problems, but so does literacy, so does numeracy, so does every cultural technology we've ever developed. There's tremendous evidence that learning to read transforms the brain, transforms how we process information and what we attend to. The internet, the global kind of technological revolution that we're in the middle of is absolutely transforming our cognition. And every new technology has pros and cons associated with it. Human history is a long line of culture being created and culture being lost. So most languages that have ever been spoken have been lost over the course of human history. Most of the technologies that humans have developed, or many of them, have also been lost. So human culture is never static. It never has been static. And creating new systems of knowledge displaces others. And there is loss and there is tragedy associated with that. I mean, currently in this point in human history, we're seeing the loss of tremendous linguistic diversity and cultural diversity. We're also seeing access to information in ways that have never before been possible. Connections between groups of humans that have never been possible in the past. Opportunities for a incredibly diverse array of different cultural communities and populations. Being access to technology, to global decision-making that was never possible in the past as well. So we are more interconnected. We communicate more than ever before, which I think is tremendously positive. But there's always loss associated with gain. It always has been. Digital technology has, of course, been profoundly disruptive in modern human society. The internet has profound consequences for what cumulative culture looks like now and what it will look like in the future. The internet allows you to access information at a very rapid rate and means that you can in many ways outsource a lot of knowledge. So it's no longer necessary to memorize certain bodies of knowledge because you can easily type a few words into Google and immediately have access to that information. So it gives us access to much larger bodies of knowledge that are very, very widely distributed and are not contained in the actual brain of individuals. It has implications for things like navigation, right? So relying on navigational software often means we attend less to our immediate environment. So it gives us breadth, but it also changes how we process information. There are compromises between depth and breadth. It means that our firsthand experience with particular toolkits, systems of knowledge, and even with particular people is more limited. So that kind of firsthand lived experience is something that we're getting less of. And you can see this in the formal schooling environments that children experience. A lot of what they're learning isn't through firsthand experience. 
It's through books, it's through the internet, it's through learning in decontextualized environments. That firsthand experience, which for some skills is really critical. If you've ever tried to go fishing by learning, you know, your, of all of your previous experiences by watching YouTube videos, that actual experience of fishing is a challenge. There isn't really any replacement for firsthand experience for a lot of important skills and knowledge. We still need that component. And the internet simply can't provide that for us, at least not exclusively. Digital technology has a particular way of impacting human culture. Digital screens change the dynamic of the social interaction. It can also change the conclusions that we draw from the interaction. And it, it both increases and decreases the amount of control that we have over the information that we're receiving from other people. So does this mean that Dr. Laguerre is gravely concerned about digital technologies that will become more ubiquitous, such as artificial intelligence? She says no. Artificial intelligence has both very positive and probably negative implications for human culture. Positive implications are that we can process information digitally at much more rapid rates with much higher levels of accuracy than we ever have before. So artificial intelligence has transformed many of our industries, our medical industries, our technological industries, but I don't have particular worries about this technology. There's also a lot of problems that the human mind appears to be truly unique in its capacity to solve. So we don't have AI solutions for a lot of the tasks that humans are uniquely good at. Innovation would be one tremendous example of that. So our ability to synthesize information in novel ways, come up with new ideas, is unparalleled and is not matched by AI technology. So using it to supplement our intelligence, I think, is the path forward, not to replace it. I think there is no replacement for human intelligence. While she may not be intimidated by technologies like AI, Dr. Laguerre does recognize that the innovations and disruptions sparked by cumulative cultural intelligence create challenges for the cultural transmission systems we've historically relied on. The systems that we put in place, whether they're elementary schools, high schools, universities, often lag behind the speed of technological progress. And this is one constant source of tension, that we need cultural transmission systems to be as flexible as the pace of technological change. And often, you know, large administrative systems are not as nimble as we might want them to be, which is one of the reasons why educational reform is such a popular topic. We need our educational systems to be responsive to the changes in our economy and our technologies that are changing at just a breakneck speed currently. The goal of educating children, the goal of child rearing, is to equip them with the skills and the knowledge they need to be successful as an adult in the community that they live in. So ideally, schools should be preparing children to be successful adults in the communities they anticipate living. So one of the current challenges is that with globalization and really extraordinary levels of mobility, adults can live 
in any corner of the, not just the country, but any corner of the globe. So a big challenge to educational systems is to prepare children to be global citizens, to have a repertoire of learning capacities that will allow them to adapt to really diverse environments that they might live in in the future, and to be lifelong learners. And while children continue to learn in the same experiential way they always have, and to be taught by adults as they have for millennia, the circumstances in which they're learning and the demands for what they're learning have not remained static. Child-rearing has changed in a great variety of different ways, even in the past 10 years. We are raising our children in environments that are evolutionarily novel, to say the least. The number of children that we have has decreased on average for a great variety of interesting and complex reasons. So we have smaller families. We're also outsourcing childcare in ways that has been really unprecedented. It's not at all uncommon to have your young child in the care of people who are not your biological relatives and to spend most of their day around unrelated children who all happen to be pretty much the same age. So we're raising our children in environments that have been constructed to maximize the efficiency of cultural transmission, where we're expecting our young children to learn very large bodies of knowledge in very short periods of time. For the first time in human history, our cumulative cultural intelligence is tasked with creating not only a citizen who participates in the culture of a village or a region, but in the culture of an entire planet. And that brings with it serious challenges. You can go to Lusaka, Zambia, and find businesses, corporations, schools that resemble cultures that are, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away. So there's been tremendous exchange in language, in cultural technology, in values and belief systems. There's absolutely a global culture that is not necessarily democratic always. So there are lots of concerns, I think, about certain cultural groups dominating that conversation and excluding others be it the dominance of the English language, for example, in global commerce and communication. That would be one example. So, you know, going forward, that global culture should ideally represent the tremendous, the dazzling diversity of human culture rather than a kind of the hegemony of one or two dominant groups. So figuring out how to create a more democratic and inclusive global culture should be a top priority. We're stronger with the diversity. I mean, that's a big part of what drives innovation, right? The more ideas you have, the better ultimately your solutions will be. Why not include the best ideas from every corner of the globe rather than just consider a small spectrum of the human population and their voices and beliefs? Channeling cumulative cultural intelligence to uphold systems that support equality and justice for all is no easy task. A lot of the growing pains associated with modern democracies are bringing to the forefront a lot of the tensions of figuring out how to create a global citizen, what that citizen should look like, what kind of knowledge they should have, what sorts of values that they should have, 
We're not there yet. We certainly haven't arrived. But never before in the history of the planet have we ever even had that conversation, what a global citizen would be. I think that's exciting times. And I don't worry at all that we haven't arrived at exactly the process for determining that. The fact that we're even having these conversations, I think, is a step in the right direction. The idea of a global citizen has never been a possibility before. Humans evolved in the context of small group living. A lot of our psychology is oriented towards living in relatively small groups. And now our cultural communities are, in some cases, about hundreds of millions of, of other people. So we're at a point in human history where we're creating global culture. And going forward, this process of the global citizen should be more inclusive. It should include and pull from the tremendous strength of cultural diversity. The fact that human culture is more diverse than culture in any other animal species by far is our greatest strength. Pulling from a vast repertoire of technological toolkits, systems of knowledge, languages, diversity of thought, the more we have to pull from, the better our solutions will be, the better our outcomes will be. We will find those solutions if we seek them in the breadth of human cultural intelligence. Creating a global citizen requires pulling from the knowledge systems and toolkits of a great variety of different populations. This is something that humans have never had to grapple with in the past. And there are growing pains associated with constructing identities at the species level rather than the country level or the state level or even the village level. This is a process of creating new identities that we've never had to construct before. Another thing to keep in mind is that we need to create a sustainable human condition that provides the basic needs, basic rights, standard of living that all humans deserve. So providing those basic needs, providing access to the kinds of resources and opportunities that currently only a small portion of our human population have access to, all of those things are necessary to succeed at a fair, inclusive, global culture for all people. So the next 10 years are gonna require collective action to solve pressing problems that face all of us. So we are increasingly interconnected. We are also increasingly required to work together to tackle problems, everything from climate change to pandemics. The construction of a global human citizen is a work in progress and will require increasing inclusivity tolerance for diversity, tolerance for working together to harness the very best of human culture to innovate. We need human cultural complexity and innovation to solve pressing problems. And we need the best of human collective intelligence in order to succeed in this enterprise. Is Dr. Laguerre hopeful that we'll be able to tap into that wellspring of human intelligence and problem solving? Will we succeed in solving our most pressing problems? 
We are a pragmatic species and we evolved in the context of small group living and we also evolved in the context of competition between groups. So a lot of our biases to be altruistic, to be pro-social, to be generous and to cooperate extend to our in-group. And that is where we spend a lot of our positive energy is benefiting the small group of people around us. I mean, a big challenge that we have to tackle going forward is extending the in-group to include everyone and not just those who are ethnically similar, racially similar, religiously similar, linguistically similar, but are similar at the level of our core biology or members of a species, and not just our own species, right? The fact that we've prioritized our own species over other species has led us astray in terms of the health of the planet and preservation of biodiversity. So harnessing the best of our nature in order to inhibit the worst of our nature is critical. I'm absolutely optimistic. What is the alternative to that? We're facing a lot of problems, but humans are creative enough, we're resilient enough to develop solutions. We need to do things differently than we've done before. We're at an unprecedented point in human history, and we need the very best of all human cultural insights and belief systems and systems of knowledge in order to tackle these problems. The only path forward is to work together and to do things better than we've done in the past. A lot of our old ways of knowing and proceeding are ineffective, and I think there's collective recognition of that. Human history goes in one direction, um, and we need to come up with new and innovative ways of being and being together to solve collective problems, to solve global problems. We'll be back in two weeks with the penultimate episode of our season, this time with an exploration of the chestnut tree, once a foundation of American culture. My dad witnessed the entire chestnut story from the time of the healthy chestnut forest. In his midlife, he saw the blight begin to take effect, and he saw the forest without the chestnut. So I grew up hearing these stories all my life and uh, had a powerful influence on me. As I finally realized it wasn't just another tree, this was uh, the foundation of a culture that's not here anymore. So I was always fascinated by the story. I became a forester for 42 years and uh, early in my career, I could still see the gray ghosts, the old trunks of the old dead chestnut still standing almost gazing down at me as I worked in the woods. And I, and I understood why my dad felt so sad about the passing of the tree. When I heard about the American Chestnut Foundation uh, coming along, I joined up. And uh, after my retirement, I'm working full-time, whatever I can do to try to bring this tree back. If you appreciate the Stories of Impact podcast, please follow us and give us a five-star rating and even a short review. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and at storiesofimpact.org. This has been the Stories of Impact podcast with Richard Sergey and Tavia Gilbert. Written and produced by TalkBox Productions and Tavia Gilbert. 
Senior producer, Katie Flood. Music by Alexander Filipiak. Mix and master by Kayla Elrod. Executive producer, Michelle Cobb. The Stories of Impact podcast is generously supported by Templeton World Charity Foundation.